This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. Welcome to Extra on this first weekend of summer. Good to have your company. We're going to meet an Australian this hour who's had the temerity to chart the history of American exceptionalism, that guiding ethos, and we're going to talk about migrants name-changing here in Australia. Who did it, who didn't, and any regrets being expressed. Now, first this hour to this special gathering I attended yesterday in Adelaide uh, about renewable energy, including green hydrogen. There's an almighty race on between the states as to which one will dominate this sector that's become that will become central to our lives. South Australia's been first out of the blocks. Its Premier, Peter Malinowskis, convened the meeting, but it's fully aware that other state governments are competing intensely to position their communities to grab the massive investment capital that will be needed. Huge change is coming. No one can really say what the electricity market will look like in a decade, but it'll be different. An adjustment is now well underway. The question is, how will we manage this big transition from fossil fuel-led energy to renewables, akin to the changes, we're told, required during wartime? Well, three people joined me for a good discussion about the near future. <clears throat> David Neal, now the CEO of IFM Investors, with $200 billion uh, in funds under management, formerly head of the Future Fund. Audrey Zibelman rejoined us too. She made a big splash here after arriving from New York as head of AEMO, if you recall, now advising internationally on energy transition. And Emeritus Professor Ross Garno, uh, whose various books have been very influential, his latest is Superpower Transformation, joined us as well, and I welcome them all. Now, I'm going to ask each of you, Chris Bowen, the energy, uh, the climate change minister, said that we are making a lot of progress, lots is happening, but the impression I've had from this morning is that a lot of this is still a work in progress for which capital is needed, big capital investment. Now, David Neal, speaking from the point of view of capital uh, in, in your work at IFM, has capital got the message yet, would you say? Great question, Geraldine. Um, certainly getting the message. Um, of course, the message is a complex one, which is, which is part of the issue. So there are, there's $50 trillion worth of pension fund money around the world and all the other institutions, and they are all on this journey at the same time, including Australian superannuation funds, trying to figure out how to play a role in this transition. I think they've, they've certainly, most of them anyway, have got the message that this transition is really, really important because future returns depend on the quality of the future system. And so if we let our system degrade, obviously that's not good for us as citizens, but it's also terrible for for investment returns. So the fiduciary duty point, which was debated for quite a long time actually, as to whether this was an appropriate thing for superannuation funds, pension funds and the like to be invested in, um, was this just do-gooding kind of stuff. That debate, I think, in most parts of the world has passed. And so superannuation funds realise they've got to play a role because future returns depend on it. Um, how to play that role is something that many are still wrestling with and, and their particular mandates as to how to organise themselves into this transition are, are still evolving and some are more sophisticated than others. Different parts of the world are more sophisticated than others. I would say that the Australian superannuation industry, again, I think is, is, is leading in this area. 
but probably still got work to do on that on that sophistication. So I, I think the message is there. The challenge is, so do we have the clarity around policy leadership? Do we have the clarity around the settings, the incentives for the long term? You know, these are investors who, who are trying to invest over decades. And, and if you don't have clarity of that over those decades, it's really hard to mobilise the capital. Um, it's one of the great things that this South Australian government is doing is it's providing that clarity and has done for many years. We need the rest of the country and in particular the federal government to, to get on that path too because that's probably the single most important thing is understanding what the rules of the road are and are those rules of the road going to be maintained into the future. And they're not good enough to come from states, separate states, those rules of the road? Uh, look, as much clarity as possible is the answer. Um, so, so depending on what the specific context is and, and the particular investment opportunity, then certainly um, the, the state clarity is important. But, um, but anything that might disrupt it, you know, for, for as long as you've got partisan politics at a federal level, it just weakens the argument. And remember, we're in a global competition for capital here. So if other countries organise themselves better, that's where the capital is more likely to flow. Does that ring true to you, Ros Garner? Uh, well, certainly the capital requirement is very large. Uh, to, to build the superpower, I say in the book, that we'll have to spend about 5.5% of GDP for about a generation and a half, on average over the next 35 years, of about $125 billion in today's prices. Uh, that seems impossibly large. Until you think about what we've done in comparable circumstances. Uh, uh, in the first decade of this century, China went through the fastest rate of growth over a sustained period any large economy has ever gone through. It uh, introduced huge increases in demand for iron ore, coal, aluminium, all of the resources. Prices rose by 400% for all of those things. Uh, and we invested in restructuring of the Australian economy to supply minerals to China mm. uh, to, to service their development. We, uh, we averaged about 5% of GDP going investment in the mining industry for a decade. At a peak, it reached 7.9% of GDP. So we did it to make rapid economic growth possible in China. And I don't think that a task of similar annual proportions, it'll have to go on for longer, and similar annual proportions, built for what broadly based Australian prosperity and global uh, management of the climate problem, I, I don't think it is any more difficult than it was to restructure for supplying minerals to the China boom. Now, you do need stable long-term policies. We've had a mess in climate policy in Australia uh, over the last decade. The, the uh, abolition of carbon pricing was hugely damaging. We'd be in a much better position if we had that. Uh, but uh, uh, our advantages are so large that I think that getting policy moving in the right direction will be uh, enough to generate the sort of uh, flows of capital that require, that's required. There's no shortage of capital globally. Uh, globally, we're going through a unique period uh, of surplus savings globally.
That's the interesting thing that we had Brookfield come in, you know, a foreign, a huge amounts of money came in from Canada and America for developments with Origin. And I sort of thought to myself, well, why hasn't that come from Australia? Why hasn't that sort of big thinking? I mean, I really want to go to you, Audrey, <laughs> but I don't even know whether you're fully aware of this, but there's been this sort of extraordinary development of this amazing investment in, in Australian decarbonisation in, in a long-term way. But it, it's money that's come from overseas. Well, you know, and I think one of the uh, advantages Australia has on all of this is we're really about a decade ahead of everybody else in actually the process of decarbonizing the system. So you have companies like Brookfield, who I think recognize that, and Iberdrola is a Spanish utility, are recognizing that, you know, where we are seeing grid decarbonization occur at scale is in Australia in a way that, that you can have great learnings. And so as I, you know, think about your question, Geraldine, you know, when, back in the U.S., there's a huge issue in terms of how do you connect renewables to the grid. You know, this whole process of connections is so challenging. That's something we, you know, we're still not through it, but we're, we've made a far more progress in Australia. And in other parts of the U.S., you simply can't even connect to the system because it's just not there yet. And so I think where we have discrete advantages is getting the policies and practices so that when capital comes in, they know that not only can you sign up the deal, but you can actually get the system online. So I think, you know, speed um, is really to, you know, our advantage right now, and we should, we should do everything we can to leverage it. See, I suppose in a way, um, is it a precarious time, David, or is it an exciting time? If, if you're thinking of big investments, uh, it, it sounds an extraordinary potential, but when is it going to be engaged in, in a big way? First comment I'd make is, is it already is. So there's a huge stock of existing assets being decarbonised all the time. They don't get necessarily the headlines. So when an investor like Brookfield comes in um, and buys an asset with a, with a declared strategy of decarbonising, I think it's important to understand that that's an event because it was a transaction. But within all of our assets, and our peer managers would be doing similar things, in all of our assets across all of Australia, across the globe, they have transition plans and they're working hard to bring emissions down. And, and that's actually where a large amount of the emissions reduction has to occur, mm. um, because that's where the emissions are. And, and it's, it's good to build the new, we have to build the new, and the, and the initiatives in, in South Australia around hydrogen and things are, 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 are fabulous and exciting and, and, and needed. But we also need in an orderly, thoughtful, skillful way, we need to deliver capital into the assets that have the emissions so that they can bring those emissions down. And there's an awful lot of activity going on already, but it's just not quite so high profile. And, and just, just going back, sorry, to your remark about you, you kind of, um, I think you were raising a concern that how come we're reliant on sort of foreign capital coming in to do this. I, I just think you need to understand that it's a global, the capital markets are global. And our example of a foreign investor coming in and doing something at much the same time we've gone into Canada for an investment. Um, yes, right. So, you know, there's, there's, it's, it's, a, it's basically a global market looking for those opportunities and, and Australian superannuation funds, Australian investors, IFM, other Australian investors are very, very active in this space, not just in Australia, but globally. Sorry, I didn't really answer your question, did I? It, it is both an incredibly exciting opportunity whenever there's so much capital, I mean, the sorts of capital that Ross has talked about, 100 billion plus a year for decades, when there's that much capital required, 
ordinarily the investor's eyes would light up and go, wow, this is amazing. You know, I've got a resource here that's desperately in demand um, that should be a fabulous opportunity. As I said, the, the challenge is that it's an incredibly complex one um, and it requires a lot of moving parts to bring it together. It's not just, from our, you know, in our context, it's not just going and looking at a toll road, doing your diligence on the toll road yes. and buying it. This requires lots of moving parts to come together, which is why this conference is important. Bringing the, the policy makers and the industrialists and the capital providers and the technologists together at the same time, I think that's the trick. Um, and well, that makes it complicated and, and risky. I must say, Audrey, your lovely story about arriving here, and I'll get you to tell the story, when you did arrive here in Australia, and I interviewed you not long afterwards, it was just as that amazing spat, public spat occurred between the, the former Treasurer, Josh Frydenberg, and the former Premier here, Jay Wetherill. And you believe it led to something really quite remarkable because it did lead to a competition between big players. Sure, and it was a spat around the fact that uh, there was a system black event in South Australia and people were thinking that it was the policy around renewables that created it and rather than walking away from it, the Premier leaned into it and took the uh, challenge between Mike Cannon Brooks and uh, Elon Musk and went ahead and built the big battery. And, and to me, this is really the story of how we're going to create the future. You know, we talk about the power system being a system of systems, and it is. It's generators and transmission and even how we consume energy all having to be working in concert. But that's only one piece of it. It's also because it's an essential service. It requires our policies to be aligned in the direction we want to go. And that's not the end of it. We also need the markets and the regulation to be aligned because through all of that then, capital then can see the future and then come in because they have the confidence, not that they're going to have high returns, because, you know, you know, to me, what I've learned along the way is, is that it's actually, it's not because you want to, you know, sort of have these peak returns. What you want in this industry is to have stable returns. And it's that constancy of theory, but that the other point it does is it becomes an accelerant. And so what we saw with the batteries, nobody believed we could do it in six months, but we had to. And it was simply that saying, we're going to get there, and everyone worked towards that common goal, that we did something that most people sort of were astonished that we completed. Mm. And, um, but mostly, I think, it was the government, the networks, AEMO and Tesla all saying, put, you know, and this is, I think, really important. We're, we're not going to get there with hubris. We're going to get there with humility. And a, and a type of collaboration, because it's a multi-dimensional problem, we need engineers, accountants, economists, politicians, all aligned to understand that, because other, and technicians. Otherwise, it just won't work. And I think that was, you know, despite everything, it was people getting in the room and putting, leaving their egos outside and solving complex issues in a short amount of time. And that's, that's really, to me, the, you know, the story of the future. Um, Ross, do we need an industry policy about this? Well, it needs a, a sensible industry policy. Industry policy in Australia 
before the 1980s had come to be associated with industry protection. Mm. We don't need that sort of policy. We, we want to focus on industries that can be globally competitive. But there are circumstances in which government deciding that a, a, a particular set of industries are going to be very important in the future and laying a policy foundation for that can, can move things forward and create an environment where you get much larger levels of pr private investment later on uh, uh, and I think the, the big battery was one of those. Until the South Australian big battery, AEMO was before you came, but not very long before that incident, AEMO said there is room in Australia for batteries up to one megawatt. Uh, and uh, it was impossible, but then once it was done, uh, it was not only possible, but everyone else wanted to do it. And now you've got dozens of these huge batteries, some of them much bigger. It was the biggest battery in the world mm. when it was put in in Jamestown in, in uh, South Australia. Uh, now uh, there are half a dozen in, uh, in Australia that are several times as big. Uh, Australians don't believe anything is real until the, it's happening in Australia. The same thing will happen with green iron. There'll be one green iron plant built uh, and... Uh, no longer will it be impossible, and then it will be like the battery. Everyone will be doing it. I think that the uh, uh, South Australian government's electrolyzer is very likely to have a similar effect. It's something that that you you, you shouldn't have to be uh, particularly well informed or or or, or a Mensa IQ to recognise it's the way Australia has to go. But it's impossible until someone does it. Well, South Australian government's going to do it. Uh, and once one is done, there'll be a hundred. Uh, and uh, uh, there is a role for that sort of government leadership. It would not be necessary if we had a, a, a private sector that uh, could co comfortably take those sorts of risks and, uh, uh, and invest in the future. Our private sector and our, our sorry David, our superannuation industry is not good at that sort of thing. They need leadership in providing a lead in some of those things. Look, there are a couple of things that come out of that, that very in interesting discussion about whether we could be entering a time when we flip our comparative advantage, because for years our comparative advantage was supplying uh, what we ripped out of the ground overseas. Do you think it is shifting, Ross, so that we might, because we have got these um, commodities available to us now and, and all sorts of capacities, that we could actually get the comparative advantage by making steel here, for instance, rather than uh, exporting the material so that others make it, which would be a complete flipping of our understanding, frankly, for the whole of European settlement, wouldn't it? Well, not since the whole period of European settlement. Australia processed a much higher proportion of its minerals in the late 19th century and early 20th century than it does now. It actually processed a much higher percentage of minerals uh, in the 1990s uh, than it does now. But it will be much, the economic forces will be in the direction of much stronger comparative advantage. Yes, answer your own question, it is flipping. It will be very different and, different and the, the centre of the difference is that uh, reductance and uh, energy required for processing were, not, were no more expensive in Kobe or Pusan or Shanghai uh, in the coal-based world or the gas-based world than they are in Eastern Australia, uh, but their 
much more expensive in the yeah. world of zero uh, uh, emissions because it's much more expensive to move overseas renewable energy or hydrogen than it is to move coal or natural gas. Mm. However, in terms of citizens thinking about this, the social license to operate. Now, I want to quote Frank Calabria, who's the CEO of Origin Energy, who said recently he warned of the need to maintain an honest dialogue with the community that amounts to much more than virtue signalling about achieving emissions reduction. The community won't congratulate us for that if we deliver poor reliability outcomes or unsustainable price increases on the way through. Now, uh, Audrey, how do you think the Australian people are hearing all this? Are they li listening to it with confidence or not? I mean, Frank is, is correct in the sense, uh, in, in the real sense, that if along the way on the path to, to decarbonisation, you know, people see price spikes that make energy unaffordable or they don't have confidence in the grid, either as a business owner or an individual citizen, and they feel vulnerable as a result, that the transition would be really very difficult. And it's not going to be just moral suasion. We have to make sure that the, that the transition itself is able to deliver value. And, but, I, but I think the good news, and, and to pick up on what Ross has said, there's a couple things that are to our natural advantage here. I mean, the point that I think you're making is that wind and solar as a resource here is cheaper than other parts of the world simply because we have such great resources. And so we can create the markets that allow us to take advantage of this cheap available energy and give it to the benefits of customers. I disagree with the, with the sort of idea that reliability will suffer because what we've learned here is that a combination of renewables with storage and using uh, our ability to electrify demand and make it flexible allow us to create a grid that is both cleaner and more efficient for consumers. So, there's, so the idea that you have to trade off decarbonizing the grid with price and reliability, that's a sort of a yesteryear discussion. We know we can, we can get there, and actually Australia is sort of proving that. You know, um, one of the things that I, when I started here, we started talking about how to create markets for demand reduction so people could get paid to actually, if they had flexible resources, to get them off the grid and see themselves as an asset. That was seen as, you know, I was, people were accusing me of trying to create a third world nation in Australia when it was something I was very used to in the US. Now we're beginning to realize that this type of flexibility, if you have solar on your roof, and during the you know, afternoon there's too much solar and you can put it in a battery, and, and then in the evening when the sun gets down you sell it back, suddenly you become part of the game. And part of the discussion I think that we need to think about as the transition is, is the recognition that not only can we say, well, actually, economic, good economic outcomes and good environmental outcomes can occur, but also we're creating this concept of energy democratization, where the ability to participate both as a, a customer but also a vendor can rest in individuals. And through that, I think we, keep the, we create the social license and, and you know, farmers and First Nations can be part of that solution. So we stop thinking about these, ourselves as stakeholders in the future, but we start believing that we are actually the shareholders and, and in a real sense, both economically and also because you know, it's our future that we're creating. I also think there's a tendency, you know, we, have, we, we did have a rigidity built into the process 
where we didn't change the markets for years because we built the markets at liberalization and we didn't want to change them. And that's true in the U.S. as well as here. What we need to recognize is that during this period of transition, there's a bigger role of government because it's a massive industrial change we're making. And so putting in policies that support capital coming in and maintaining reliability and price is important. But that these policies don't have to be policies that remain after the transition. They are an enablement. And I, and I think we have a tendency to think, oh, if, if government acts in a certain way, that's a permanent change versus no. It's just to make sure that this transition doesn't occur in such a way that it, it creates a huge amount of disruption in people's lives. And that, that is the appropriate role. Look, I do want to ask about related issues to do with planning. Uh, at the Sydney Energy Forum in July this year, um, I understand the German energy minister outlined how they'd put aside uh, many of the consultative planning policies, I think he called it, uh, and were pushing ahead with renewable projects to secure um, their uh, energy and, in effect, saying we are on a semi-war footing. I mean, you know, the Germans probably do think they are, actually. And that they just had to deal with the energy crisis caused by Russia. Now, I wonder... You alluded to this, Ross. That's, now, that's a quick, quick way to lose community support, isn't it? Uh, is to say, well, some of the planning rules that we have in place around your community are not going to work because we have such a crisis. Do you see that as um, a, a, an issue that will have to be dealt with? Well, fortunately, our position is not the German one. Uh, it's only by bringing the, the whole community along that we'll uh, sustain success, done right, uh, you get a lot of support. It makes local communities wealthier. It improves uh, employment in, uh, uh, in rural and uh, provincial Australia. Uh, but you do have to have the consultation process. You do have to respect, respect uh, environmental processes. The, the Spencer Gulf, uh, which uh, both the Premier and I mentioned, is an area of huge opportunity for expansion of the zero emissions uh, industry, is, is one of the most valuable marine environments on Earth. Uh, it's beautiful. I, drove there uh, to, to Wyala with a couple of uh, grandkids uh, a few days ago and uh, when they uh, were swimming in uh, the water they were visited by half a dozen dolphins. Uh, uh, it's a magnificent marine environment. We would make a huge mistake if we did not uh, respect that. It's a matter of doing it right. Uh, do it properly and we can uh, uh, get the support that's necessary to build this prosperous new economy. Look, I do want to speak to you, Audrey, about AI and machine learning, because you did mention that, that this is key to doing this transition at scale. I is any country ahead of the curve on this? Um, here, here's the point. Um, we can use digitalization tools like simulation, like AI, like machine learning, uh, and even quantum um, computing as a means of helping us create the capabilities, the tools that are going to be necessary to run a power system that it's going to require, it's going to be billions of devices, renewable energy, things like that, that's hugely data intensive and enable us to solve the issues in such a way that we have a lot more confidence. But what's all equally important is once we develop this capability, we have the capability, when you think, of, I think about when, you know, how software sort of, you know, in, in Silicon Valley, we talk about software eating the world, is to think about how, for example, when we travel, 
And you know, we use our credit cards, and some of us remember that you couldn't do that. But now we can because we have these platforms. And we think about, you know, when I show up into airport now in Australia, I call up my Uber app, and it works the same way here as it works in the U.S. What digitalization can do for us is, is actually not only develop the tools, but develop the standardization, and also develop the capabilities so that when people are running the power system, they can learn from each other. And, and so when we think about how we use information, so we, they don't have to discover the same thing over and over again. We can use digital tools so that when someone's running a power system in uh, Johannesburg, and they're wondering whether they can accommodate a 20 to 30% uh, increase in solar, the tool can say, well, yes, this is how you do it. And the reason the tool knows that it's done that way because it was done in Adelaide. And there's no reason then for the system in, in Johannesburg to have to relearn that lesson. And so this, this aspect of using simulation and digitalization, I think, is not only something that we can help inform in Australia, but becomes, again, a, a good that we can export that is going to be necessary because we just have run out of time to think that every utility in the world is going to have to learn how to do this, and, and then it's really how we use intelligence in the system and data and information to, to get us all there faster and cheaper. Well, we are, we'll see. I think uh, the debate it's, it's a very interesting debate, and I think it's been marvellous to have you all here. So, ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank Audrey, Ross and David. And that was an edited version of a panel that I hosted at the South Australian Investment Conference uh, with David Neal from IFM Investors, Professor Ross Garno and Audrey Zebelman, the former head of the Australian Energy Market Operator. And thank you for your texts on this as well. Well, coming up in a moment, the history and nuances of American exceptionalism. <laughs> Yes, American exceptionalism is a well-worn theory among historians, political scientists, those interested in foreign affairs, remembering Madeleine Albright's, you know, America the indispensable nation just before the Iraq war. It's a term you often hear in political speech, referring to America's unique history and values and society. But where the term came from and what it means exactly hasn't been closely examined until now. Professor Ian Tyrrell is an Australian professor of American history from the University of New South Wales, and he set this right with his new book, American Exceptionalism, A New Idea, A New History of an Old Idea. It's a demanding read, but well worth it for those interested in gaining a deeper understanding of America's understanding of itself and its place in the world. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Thank you very much, Geraldine. Interesting that an Australian tackled this, Ian. Well, I think Australia and the United States in some ways is very alike. And so the first thing that comes out of that, well, what is exceptional about America if there are similar things going on in Australia? I think we're um, quite different, you see. I don't think we're the same, but I think that superficially it looks like we're, superficially, we're similar. Superficially, yes. When you do a comparison, we're different. But comparison wouldn't lead us to exceptionalism in any case because the United States has to be compared with all other countries in order to prove that it's exceptional. Well, maybe you should define the concept of American exceptionalism as it's currently understood. And what we'll find is that it moves around a lot. Currently, it, it is really about American leadership in the world. America somehow still have a sense of destiny about itself that uh, is maybe from God, but maybe just from the historical process itself. And that the United States is not merely unique but that it is different in a fundamental way, that it is 
above other countries. It is above the normal course of human history, that it's outside of that normal pattern of human history. That's their the current their think view. That's of right. what, it, what it is. Madeleine Albright said that America could see further than other, other countries. We see further than other peoples do. That implies that the United States is above the rest of his human history. Well, that's history. certainly how it has appeared to me. Uh, that that's their perception, I think, yes, of it. And yes. it but you say that it actually wasn't particularly well understood broadly, might have been among academics, until comments made by President Barack Obama in 2009 in Strasbourg, which were interpreted incorrectly to suggest that he did not subscribe to the theory. So that's this right. is more complicated than that's you That's right. I mean, the, the idea then became a kind of political point, a political talking point that the Republican Party could exploit, that Obama was not an exceptionalist. He didn't believe in the United States as being better than other countries, that it was just an ordinary everyday country like other countries are. And that developed into a kind of Republican campaign, which in the 2012 presidential election had the words American exceptionalism emblazoned in the platform of the Republican Party. And yet... Um, American exceptionalism, as I understand it, was disavowed by Donald Trump, despite his Make America Great against Exactly. Him. And actually, this is one of uh, the, the great insights of Donald Trump, and he didn't have very many. He said that he didn't like the term American exceptionalism. He didn't really believe in American exceptionalism. He believed in American greatness. Greatness is different from exceptionalism. Many countries have been great in world history, but according to American exceptionalism, only the United States has been exceptional. There's a fundamental distinction there. Greatness is about quantitative differences when you really get down to it. Trump was really thinking about the capacity of the United States to beat other countries and be number one so that when Americans... It's a competitive thing. Yes, it's a very competitive thing. By the same token, people who chant number one, USA number one, for example, as for example when Osama bin Laden was killed, that's really an affirmation of that number one place in world history that Americans think that their country has and should keep. But we must be careful here. We've got to be specific. It you don't equate American exceptionalism with the concepts of the American dream, the American mm. way, or the American creed. Now, why are these concepts not interchangeable? Because they're not really grounded in an, in an interpretation of history as American exceptionalism is. American exceptionalism is grounded in the idea that the nation was founded exceptional and that it has always been exceptional. The American dream has been kind of appropriated as a term which reflects a desire for Americans to have a good standard of living and to be able to own a home, for example, yeah. to get ahead in business. These are all themes that are feed into American exceptionalism, but they're not the essence of exceptionalism, which must revolve around the idea of chosenness. Let's go back to the history of the term then. Yeah. When did the idea of exceptionalism start? What were the circumstances? Well, the, the very first use of the term that we know was in 1861 during the American Civil War when the, the British correspondent for the London Times talked about American exceptionalism. And what he really meant by that was that the United States just didn't act like other countries when it came to the um, military matters. The term was not used again 
to describe the United States as far as we know until the era of Joseph Stalin. It became a term that was a Marxist term, really, to denote how the United States diverged from other capitalist countries. So that was the exceptionalism. So we're talking pre-war, are we? No, we're talking now post... No, you, you uh, pre- are talking about post-war. We're talking about the 1920s. Oh, I see, okay. post-World War One. Yeah, yeah, Stalin. Stalin's mm. coming through then. Okay. Yes, I always think it means a little so bit later than that. You find it in, Mar- in Marxism, you see, because Marxism is about the idea that there's a, going to be a revolution which will t- spread throughout the world... And all countries are presumably going to go through this class conflict and eventually to a socialist paradise. Now, whereas the Bolsheviks had taken over Russia and formed the Soviet Union, the United States just seemed to have no serious communist or socialist threat facing it in the 1920s. The Communist Party was very small. Well, they basically killed the union movement. (laughs) And they killed the union movement as well, the United States really, basically. So that notion came up almost as a pejorative term, American. It did, yeah, it did. But Stalin uh, didn't accept that the United States was exceptional. What he did was he denounced American socialists who proclaimed the idea that the United States' path to socialism would be different. And these people were led by a guy named Jay Lovestone. I call it in the book the Lovestoneite deviation. So it's deviating from what the Comintern says the socialist revolution should undertake. Oh, it was meant as a pejorative, but it was taken over by Lovestone and, and Bertram Wolfe and others who are later on to be anti-socialists as, yeah, we're great. This, uh, there'll be a lot of socialist revolutions, but they'll all be different because every country is different. So we are exceptionalists for every country. We're not just for the United States. But that didn't enter into academic discourse until the 1940s and 1950s, partly because a lot of Trotskyites and uh, other Marxists, you know, ended up in academia in some way. And they knew about this term American exceptionalism from the 1930s and from Stalin and from Lovestone. They began to use it to describe the United States in the 1950s. Now, I want to move away to the important religious aspect of this, but specifically Mm. Christian to Mm. exceptionalist ideology. And religious institutions, you say, have played an important role in upholding and promoting the idea. They certainly are today. There's a strong connection between evangelical Christianity and support for these doctrines of America as a kind of chosen nation. It came up again in the 2012 presidential election and in the 2016 to a lesser extent because Trump kind of muffled that. But the religious aspect really goes back to the founding of the colonies in Massachusetts in the 17th century and the idea of a kind of a chosen people. Yes. Okay. With a lot of separation between church and state, of course. Well, not in Massachusetts. Only one colony, and later on a couple of others, had separation of church and state in the 17th and 18th centuries. Most colonies had a religious establishment. And in, in Massachusetts, that was the Congregational Church, just as it was the Anglican Church in Virginia. It wasn't until the revolution that the separation of church and state came about. But The idea of a city on a hill, which was John Winthrop's speech that he gave upon the arrival of the, uh, you know, Pilgrim Fathers, he, um, you know, used this phrase, and this phrase was forgotten for a long time, the city on a hill, but it was resurrected in the 20th century, particularly by Ronald Reagan to refer to what the United States was. In other words, the United States had this deep relationship 
with a sense of destiny and chosenness. Uh, Let me just tell listeners, uh, Professor Ian Tyrrell is my guest and and his new book is titled American Exceptionalism, A New History of an Old Idea and we're delving down into it. Why hasn't the change, you could argue, the change in material circumstances for the US weakened this idea of exceptionalism? I, I, I suppose it might have strengthened it in a sort of paradoxical way, but I'm intrigued by that. Well, it does intrigue me too. I I mean, in in the early days, exceptionalism became fulfilled, as it were. The chosenness seemed to be fulfilled by westward expansion, which obviously involved killing off and removing large numbers of Indigenous people, something that Americans tended to forget about. As the United States became a world power, that seemed to back it up in material terms. We're seeing that... particularly post-World War II. Yeah, post-World War II Of course, they pretty pretty much were the exceptional power, weren't they? (laughs) They were, yes, obviously they were in material terms, but exceptionalism is not just about material achievement. It's about being different in a non-material way. Well, surely the Marshall Plan was that. Well, the Marshall Plan was very, very good geopolitics. It really put the expansion of communism in Europe at bay. But the victors, such extraordinary behaviour by victors, we don't see an awful lot of that through history. No, we don't. That's one of these cases where you can call the American achievement at that point exceptional, but it's exceptional in relation to what? It's not It's not in any absolute sense exceptional because the United States has not always been generous to those that it's conquered. So do you, is it a settled term then among scholars and historians? This is a good question. It's certainly a settled term among historians and political scientists and sociologists and all kinds of academics and most general commentators have got a sort of vague idea about what it means. They just don't understand the complexities and the contradictions that are involved in it that I have to explore in my work. They more or less take whatever it is they're looking at and determine whether they think that is exceptional or not. I mean, didn't the British Empire think it was exceptional too? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So this is part of an empire, imperial attitude. I mean, the Russians do too. In my opinion, yes. In in my opinion, it's a very, very important part of the development of, uh, of an American empire and its distinctiveness in the 20th century. But even in the 19th century, because of the expansion of the West, what was that but another form of imperial expansion across the American West? So is it that what the Americans seem to do is articulate it? It's it's a very articulated part, as I read it anyway, of the way they see their role in the world. It is, but often often using different concepts to describe that. You know, sometimes the American dream, the American way, there are all these things come up, but it's only really been since Obama's time really, that that the term American exceptionalism has been the one that's been more or less systematically applied to it. I mean, during the COVID crisis, for example, lots of people were arguing about whether the United States was or were not exceptional based on its performance in COVID. It's poor performance. Good or bad. You know, poor performance (laughs) or that, you know, it meant freedom because they weren't locking down. But when you actually look at the statistics, the United States was in the pack. It was never exceptional. Okay, the only exceptional thing about it was that for a time it had the greatest number of deaths per capita. I don't think it even rates in the top 20 in terms of per capita deaths now. So finally, can we take from what you're saying that exceptionalism will remain a powerful force in US public life or not, given Trump's 
rather interesting approach to it. I think it will remain an important force. I think it's almost impossible to conceive that it wouldn't, but it does so under increasing pressure from reality, the reality of the need to have allies, the reality of other countries becoming as strong or stronger in various ways, the internal divisions in the United States. I can't see it going away. It's really deeply ingrained. But often people who are anti-exceptionalists, you know, they they phrase it within that same type of uh, thinking of, is the United States exceptional or other? This, This obsession with deciding whether the United States is or is not exceptional will persist. And the world has to really put up with that because this is the world's most powerful country. And yet at at the top, they're really not sure quite what they stand for. And they're really not sure exactly how that they should uh, articulate that and what it means and what they should do about it. Uh, Mm. In my opinion, they should just jettison their whole idea entirely. But all peoples need to have an idea of who they are, where they're going and exceptionalism is such a powerful articulation of that. Okay. All right, Ian, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you, Geraldine. That was Ian Tyrrell, Emeritus Professor of History at the University of New South Wales, and his book is American Exceptionalism, A New History of an Old Idea. It's a University of Chicago press publication. Well, look, another joy of being in Adelaide this weekend is to attend a concert by the Adelaide Symphony Orchestra honouring the incredibly long creative life of Barbara Streisand, the Brooklyn girl who became a star, who turned 80 this year, the only singer to have had number one albums across six decades. Here's one of her classics, Putting It Together. Financing it is not. Why take chances? A vision's just a vision if it's only in your head. Nobody respects your artistic integrity more than I do. If no one gets to hear it, it's as good as dead. You have to think about your career. It has to come to life. Bit by bit, putting it together. Piece by piece, only way to make a work of art. Every moment makes a contribution. Every little detail plays a part. Having just the vision's no solution. Everything depends on execution. Putting it together, that's what counts. Ounce by ounce, putting it together. That's from the classic album, Putting It Together. And uh, for a lot of us who adore her work, that's something you can recite. Now, for many migrants arriving in Australia, especially in the post-war, World War II era of mass migration from continental Europe, there was pressure to fit in with the Australian way. One way this was particularly felt was in names. Long and, for Anglo-Australians, difficult to pronounce Greek and Italian names made some migrants feel uncomfortably different and conspicuous. So many anglicised their names by shortening them or rearranging them or changing them altogether. Personal experience led journalist and author Dr Phil Kafkaloudis to find out more about why Greek migrants changed their names and why so few have reverted to their original names. Now, Phil had a long career with the ABC, but he's been a busy man lately. He's the author of Australia Calling, 80 Years of International Broadcasting. It's a history of Radio Australia. It's just released and I hope we have time to find out about it. Welcome, Phil. Oh, g'day, Geraldine. How are you? Good, good. Look, tell us about the survey you sent out to Greek communities. Who responded to you? What stories did you find? Oh, look, there were so many that I got. I mean, it comes from my childhood when, you know, there were um, so many people that I knew as Mr Vass or 
or Mr. Savas or whatever. And I went, Is that, was that your Greek name? No, no, we changed it. So I sent out this survey. I was just, I just finished the book, Australia Calling, and I'd, I thought, I've got to do something now, you know. I was at that kind of loose end after you've given birth, you know. And <laughs> so I thought, this is an interesting idea to actually look at this. It, come, it jumped into my head every so often. So I sent out a survey asking a number of questions, including um, who in your family changed their name? Was it your father, grandfather? Was it you? Um, why did they do it? And, and the really great question that I asked at the end was almost an afterthought in the survey was, would you consider reverting back? And so what I got was a whole lot of stuff that came from across the country. Um, many people in Darwin and in Perth especially were sent in, um, sent in answers. And a lot of them talked about their grandparents doing this because this was the white Australia policy time. Mm -hmm. And when they arrived in the 20s or the 30s, they felt that they needed to fit in. There were actually three reasons why people changed their names, you know, the, the whole idea of it. One of it was um, convenience, simple convenience, that they didn't want to have to go spelling Kafkaludis to everybody all the time. <laughs> uh, um, and tell me about it. Um, the second one was um, acceptance. They felt that they would be, they'd find it easier to get a job if they weren't perceived as being really Greek. And the third one was simply racism. Um, and there was a period, especially in the 30s, where there was a lot of racism. So people feared retribution. They feared people would hold it against them in a big way. So they're the reasons why uh, that people changed their names. And they're and, the three themes that went through everything. And was there a sense of loss at having to do this? No. That was the most amazing thing about it. Nobody, not one respondent said, I feel it was a really, or my father, my grandfather, my grandmother um, felt that this was a terrible thing. There was an overwhelming feeling of, I've come to Australia, um, this is what I need to do, no loss about it. I'm sure there were, there had to be, but among the respondents that I received, there wasn't a single response of someone saying, I regretted it. That's really surprising, isn't it? it has, yeah, isn't it? I, I was really surprised, yeah. See, when did your family name become CAF, K-A-F-F, and could you, like the name Kafkaludis, what clues does it give you about your family's origins? Yeah, it's an interesting one, Kafkaludis, because my father, my dad, when he died nearly 30 years ago, he always maintained that the name was given to him by um, his workers because they, they came to Darwin just after this First World War and they began a building business. In fact, some poor sods live in Kafkaludi's Crescent um, <laughs> in Darwin. I, I'm really sorry about that. Um, but they, they came to Darwin and the idea that my father told me was that the name was a completely different one and Amolus was the name, he said. And because my grandfather used to brag about how fabulous his buildings were, he built the Don Hotel in Darwin, um, which stayed up after the bombing, the during the bombings in um, World War II, that they called him a Kafkaludis, which in a certain Greek dialect means big head, up yourself, bragger, you know. Right. Um, and I went, what a great story. Awful that I've got this name, but, but nevertheless, it's a good story. Um, but my research 
into the family just this year has shown that wasn't true. Um, he was his father was born Kafkaludis on the island of Castellorizu, and he was born to two people called Kafkaludis. So it's really interesting how oral histories can be so completely wrong. And and um, what were the circumstances that led you to changing your name back to Kafkaludis then? Yeah, I know. Well, the family his his my grandfather's sons all changed their name to Kaf except for the eldest who kept the Kafkaludis building company. Um, my brothers still have Kaf, but it was in the 1980s when I met my partner and she said, Kafkaludis is such a beautiful name. Why do you use Kaf? And I was using it professionally in commercial radio. Um, and I came, <laughs> it was funny, when I joined the ABC in 1988, I, got, I went through an interview process and they said, we'd like to tell you you've um, got the job in the newsroom. I went, fantastic. And they said, one thing, though, you need to go back to the Greek name. Did they say that, did they? they? Well, what they really said was, yes, because we don't have enough wogs in the place. Oh, oh I see. I'm with you. <laughs> but at the time, the guy said it. He said it with a laugh. And at the time, I laughed too. I thought, that's, that's okay, that's funny. I'll go back to the, the Greek name. Of course, now it would be a sackable offence to say something like that. But, <laughs> but at the time, yeah, okay, went along with it. Look, it's interesting, uh, this really, we're getting a few texts coming in too. Migrants didn't just change their family names, they also adopted Anglo first names, like Stavros became Steve, Joanna yes. became Joanna, and Philippos became Phil. Have, yeah. uh, have the first names disappeared as well? Yeah, they had. I mean, that's, that's outside the remit of my survey, but what was interesting when I've talked about this research people come up and they talk about the names a lot. Um, and when people were changing their names, often they changed their names on arrival in Australia by leaving out the surname. That was one method. Leave out the survey so you became Ionis or John Savas. And Savas might have been their middle name. So the family name was left off altogether. But there is, there is a technique that was... Um, surveyed in the 1950s in America, which said how people change their names, often leaving a few letters off the end, off the middle, um, or off the beginning, or a combination of all of those things. So Vassilopoli could be become Vass, you know, so there were plenty of that, or Savas became Sava. And for some reason, they thought that made it sound more English. I don't really think so, but that's what they believed. Actually, you know? one of our texters has written in saying she notices a trend back to people using those names again. Uh, and, and there is some talk about people baptising children with the full Greek names. I mean, we're just talking about Greeks. There's probably others we can talk about in a moment. But have you noticed that? Um, no. Interesting that um, in, in the survey responses I've got, a lot of people in that last question about returning to the Greek name, a lot of people said, I would love to. Um, and I'm thinking about it. Uh, so it wasn't overwhelming, but some of them said, I'd like to, but it's too hard. In the post 9 11 era, you have to change everything. And Phil Kafkaludis, our very welcome guest today. And that's it for Extra with me, Geraldine Doog. Thank you for your company today. And I do hope you can join us again next week. Bye bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.